This week we're doing another Four Minutes of Threads episode. If you're new to this, it's an occasional series I do where we examine the nuclear war film Threads in minute and excruciating detail, mainly because I'm obsessed with the film and I like to think that I've provoked a lot of listeners into becoming obsessed with it too. If you're not obsessed, you're not doing this right. And if you haven't watched it yet, well, I recommend purchasing a copy. (laughs) Michael! Michael! Listeners to this podcast will know that Threads has shaped my whole life and my whole career, and it's the reason that we're listening to this podcast. This is the third episode in our Four Minutes of Fred series. I know that it's common for podcasts which analyse films to do it one minute at a time, but I chose four minutes because of the nod to the four-minute warning. So, as I said, this is the third episode in our Four Minutes of Thread series, which means we're starting at eight minutes into the film. So let's go ahead and wring everything we can out of those four minutes. I'm quite good. Attack warning. Attack warning. Is it for real? Attack warning. It's for bloody real. Is it? So our eight minutes starts with some on-screen text. Now, Threads does this quite a lot throughout the film. It pops up some detail about uh, the, the scenes that we're seeing. And it's not just done to impart information, but it's done to lend Threads the feel of a documentary, putting facts and figures upon the screen. And that makes the film, of course, feel so gritty and realistic. It pushes it from drama closer to the border with documentary. So the text we see at the eighth minute reminds us that Sheffield is the fourth largest city in Britain. Is it still Britain's fourth largest? Well, it depends how you measure a city, of course. Is it by size, by population, by importance? And if so, which importance? Uh, A city's historical or cultural, industrial, military importance? But if we go by population, then yes, Wikipedia tells us that Sheffield was indeed fourth in the 1980s. But most reliable sources seem to agree it has since slipped one place to fifth, coming in behind my city, Glasgow. Of course, the choice of Sheffield is another great strength of threads, It's not set in a smoothly familiar, well-known city. This is not New York or Paris or London. Hey, it's not even Manchester or Birmingham. It's, and forgive me Sheffielders, it's the slightly grubby, down-at-heel Sheffield. The film pulls us away from settings where the high and mighty live, where the politicians dwell, the people who, of course, are making this nuclear war happen or allowing it to happen, takes us away from those locations and into the ordinary landscape of ordinary people in early 1980s Britain. Now, I know I just called Sheffield grubby. I'm obviously referring to its portrayal in the film, where we see the back streets, uh, the little newsagents and fruit and veg shops, the terraced houses and the smoke of the city's dying industries. I've never been to Sheffield, but a quick look at Google Street View shows you the city is packed with lots of gorgeous Victorian grandeur. So, 
No offence is meant to Sheffield, we're looking at its portrayal in the film, not its present reality. Another bit of text pops up to tell us that Sheffield's main industries are steel, engineering and chemicals. Reinforcing then what we already know, that this is a working city and also a working class city. Now that's a matter of pride of course and a source of wealth. Being home to these industries also makes Sheffield vulnerable for two reasons. One is that it's 1984 and Britain is de so many of the jobs that we see in these industries will soon be at risk or perhaps gone altogether. But these industries also make Sheffield vulnerable in military terms because it makes the city a whopping great target. Now, talking of industry, we see Ruth's dad for a second on the screen. He's at work in one of the, well, I assume it's a steelworks. But he's not a labourer or a manual worker. No, no, not Ruth's dad, Mr Beckett. He is very middle class. And so he's not out there on the floor getting his hands dirty. Instead, we see him with a clipboard in charge, directing others into the sparks and the flames of the Sheffield Steelworks. A reminder, of course, that Ruth is from a nice, secure, middle-class family, whereas Jimmy is working class. And in 1980s Britain, and arguably still today, that mattered. As someone who was brought up in early 1980s Britain on a grubby council estate, very working class, and who actually fled a friend's house in embarrassment one day because I was expected to join her and her relatively posh family at breakfast the next morning at their big dining table. I was too embarrassed. I thought I would do something wrong. I won't be able to unfold my napkin properly. Where does the napkin go? Does it go tucked around your neck or does it go on your lap? Maybe there aren't napkins. Maybe that's just a restaurant thing. And what about the cutlery? Will there be lots of different um, rows and rows of it laid out? Or will it just be a spoon, a knife and a fork? I didn't know what to expect and I was too embarrassed to even wade into that middle-class atmosphere to actually sit at a dining table with that posh family. And so I pretended to my friend that I had a headache and I skipped off home as soon as dawn had broken. I was too embarrassed to sit at the table. (laughs) And I still remember that. I was only, oh, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12. I was um, young enough, of course, to be having a sleepover with friends and yet old enough to be allowed to go out to sleepovers with friends. So I'm assuming I was about 11 or 12, maybe. And that um, still sticks in my mind that I was too embarrassed or too nervous to join with that middle-class family. When I think to how <laughs> to how we ate breakfast, my sister and I, Jen, our mum would pour us two bowls of cereal in the morning and then shout down the hall, Crispies out! We're called Crispies for some reason in our house. Although when I was a, a toddler, I called them mop beats. But she would say, Crispy's out, put the bowls of cereal on the carpet in front of the TV, and we would just scamper through into the living room and eat off the floor. Well, eat off bowls, place on the floor. Now, is that normal? Please, honestly, tell me, did you... <laughs> were you fed like that? Or am I making a big deal out of it? But I just know that that's how we ate in our house, or in our flat, rather. We didn't have a dining room or a dining table our food was placed on the carpet or we would eat it off our knees so 
I consider that a class thing, but maybe it's not. Maybe it was just that we were lazy. <laughs> and our mum thought the best way to shut us up was to feed us by placing bowls on the floor in front of the TV. But anyway, I'm getting off the, off the topic. Class, to me at least, in 1980s Britain was ever-present and hugely, flamingly important. So there was no way that I felt able to immediately switch from eating crispies from the carpet to taking a seat at the middle-class dining table in the big posh Victorian house. There was no way that I could leap from crispies to muesli and caviar or whatever posh people have for their breakfast. So I slunk off home and it was embarrassing and humiliating to do that. And when I got back, I had to pretend, oh yeah, keep up the pretense, yeah, sore head, oh, I had to come home. Too embarrassed to tell anyone I am not fit to sit at a dining table with posh people. Back home it was to Cocoa Pops on the carpet. Now, I talk a lot about class because the four minutes of this film that we're examining here today do deal with the class divide between the Kemp family and the Becketts. So permit me that pathetic little anecdote about being frightened to eat breakfast with middle-class people. So the camera, after we leave the the steelworks, etc., the camera soon cuts to the exterior of Ruth's house. And, oh, it's a big fancy house. The kind of house I would be too afraid to eat breakfast in. It's a big Victorian semi-detached villa set at an elevated position high above the pavement. You have to climb a set of stone steps to the door before you're even permitted to touch the doorbell. Now, this is very obviously a big, uh, important house. It's inside, it's cool and spacious and quiet and perhaps ever so slightly intimidating. Unlike Jimmy's house, which we've seen in earlier scenes, which is a cramped little terrace filled with the clattering of dishes and the arguing of parents and siblings. Now, Ruth's Victorian house overlooks Sheffield's Endcliffe Park, and that was once the site of a terrible plane crash during the war. In February of 1944, an American bomber, a B-17 flying fortress with 10 airmen on board, crashed in the park, killing all the crew. A local man called Tony Folds was in the park on that day with his friends and he saw the crash and he swears that the pilot had tried to avoid him and his pals, thereby saving their young lives. There's now a memorial to the crew in the park and Mr Folds has said, it's more than bravery what they did. They saved me and I mean saved me. These are now part of my family. My ashes are going to be put by the memorial. I might as well stay with them, you know. Now, inside Ruth's house, the middle-class flavour gets even stronger. Everything is beige and cream and pale, pale, inoffensive pink. We know that the writer of Threads, Barry Hines, was a very feisty left-winger, and I've read that he didn't especially get on with the director, Mick Jackson, as he saw Jackson as a very middle-class chap. So I see Barry Hines' attitude to the middle classes here in the decor of the Beckett's house. No colour, no dash, no swagger. All is tastefully bland. 
And we see Mrs Beckett wearing a twin set in pearls. That's surely the outfit of the middle classes. Now, our pearl-clutching, twin-set-wearing Mrs Beckett is spotted at the window, nervously watching the street. Now, surely it's too early in the film for her to be awaiting the bomb, watching the sky for enemy planes, uh, wondering if her thin neck curtains will deter flying glass or maybe muffle the heat of the flash. But no, she's watching the street for something far more terrifying than thermonuclear war. And that's the arrival of the working class Kemp family. For today is the day when the two families meet. And of course they're being forced to meet because working class Jimmy has got posh Ruth pregnant. And so they're being forced, or at least gently pushed, into marriage. We can assume that Mrs Beckett is both nervous, but maybe also a bit ashamed, because her posh daughter has been knocked up by this common boy. And to perhaps emphasise this point, Ruth is dressed in scarlet. Everything in the house is, as I said, pale and beige and bland, except for Ruth sitting there, a scarlet woman in her bold red dress. Let me mention another strange thing which pops up in this scene. The Beckett's TV has a lamp on top of it. And that looked really odd to me. Surely it's best to watch TV in the dark, or at least with your lights dimmed. So what's with the lamp? Why would you stick a lamp right on top of your TV? Well, it seems that in the early days of TV in the home, there was a worry that watching it in a darkened, dim room would damage your eyesight. So people wanted a bit more light when they were watching TV. But there was a problem. The early TV sets were quite dim. They didn't throw out a big blaze of 4D light as we get now. They were a bit dim, a bit flickery. So if you did watch them in a bright room, you'd hardly be able to see a thing on the screen. And so the idea of the TV lamp was created. This meant you could watch your dim TV with a little bit of light shining above it, which wouldn't blot out the TV, which wouldn't bleach it away, but would protect you from developing eye strain. So a whole range of TV lamps popped up. A lot of them were very decorative. If you do a quick Google of them, you'll see a lot of vintage sellers on eBay, for example, are um, selling them. They're quite hideous. A lot of them are quite decorative, shaped like panthers or vases of flowers or pantries. And they were designed to emit a little bit of light. They weren't a blazing bright light. You could stick them on top of the TV and they would give out a nice bit of ambient light and soothed all the family's worries about eye strain. So I assume that's why there's a big great lamp plonked on top of the TV, something you would surely not see these days on a TV. Now, into this bland beige room comes the serious and middle-class Mr Beckett. And he's not concerned with the womanly chatter about the new family. His wife and Ruth are over at the window talking about the arrival of the Kemp's and how they'll get on. Mr Beckett's not interested. He goes straight to the TV, turns it on. Of course, no remote control. And then he sits in his armchair. Of course, he puts the news on, because he's a serious man. And the news, naturally, is full of the crisis in the Middle East. And he tries to listen to it over the female chatter coming from the seat by the window where his wife and daughter are. 
And again, that scene or that notion happens a lot in the early part of Threads. News is playing in the background, either on TV or on the radio, and people are not listening. We are listening because we know, of course, we know what's coming, and we are urging the, the cast to please listen, look what's happening. But they carry on with their normal lives. So Mr Beckett tries to listen, but Ruth and her mum, they're concerned with other things. Interestingly, as Mr Beckett watches the news, he also unfolds a newspaper on his lap and reads the news. And I suppose these days he wouldn't have a paper in his lap, he'd have a smartphone and he'd be scrolling through Twitter to see what the latest updates were. And maybe we can take some comfort from that. They say that these days the fact that we're scrolling through Twitter means that our attention spans have shortened or been frazzled. But back in those days... Mr Beckett is able to read the paper whilst listening to the news. So maybe, just maybe, the internet hasn't ruined our attention spans. Old Mr Beckett is doing fine, both reading the news and watching the news. And then, the working classes arrive. The Kemps pull up in the street in their old Mark II Cortina. And if Mr Beckett is the king of his castle, perched up a flight of stone steps in his Victorian villa, ensconced in his armchair taking in world affairs. Poor Mr Kemp, recently made redundant, and last seen wearing a floral apron as he sorted out the family's dinner. He's arguably further emasculated here as he gets out of the passenger door of the Cortina. So he's not even granted the traditional dad role of driving the family about. He must be content to be relegated to the passenger seat. And as the Kemps climb out of their car... Mrs Kemp is back at the window, twitching the neck curtains, looking down at them, literally looking down at them from her high Victorian window, whose sill is (laughs) decorated with plastic flowers and ornamental teapots. Now, we can't say that having ornaments everywhere is a sign of being middle class, because I remember my gran, working class of course, her house was full of ornaments. She had ornaments called uh, ladros, I don't know if you're familiar with ladros. They are, I believe they're Spanish. They are little kitsch ornaments, I suppose, in shades of lilac and grey. And they're mostly, the ones Gran had at least, dogs in baskets and Victorian girls holding flowers and little ballerinas tying up their shoes and horses, lots of reading horses. So um, we can't say that having your shelf or your sill cluttered with ornaments is a posh middle class thing. Because we had it in our house, or my gran had it rather in her house. Perhaps it's just a 1980s thing, because when I look around my flat just now, there are no ornaments. Unless we count a tiny figurine that I have on the mantelpiece of the traffic warden from Threads, from this very film. I've tweeted pictures of him before. Um, Get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell if you want to see him. So he's there on my mantelpiece. Does that class as an ornament? Probably not. And beside him on the mantelpiece, there's another nuclear thing. It's a snow globe, but inside it is a little ruined city. And when you shake the snow globe, the little flakes which go drifting past aren't snowflakes, but they are bits of fallout dust. So that's what I have on my mantelpiece. Instead of horses and Victorian cherubs and ballerinas, as my gran had, I've got traffic wardens holding guns. (laughs) 
so the Kemp's arrive and there's an awkward scene in the hallway where everyone shakes hands and then we cut to a street scene. It's now May the 12th and we see a backstreet newsagents in Sheffield where Alison, Jimmy's young sister, is collecting papers for her paper round. She delivers the Star, which is a daily newspaper in Sheffield and according to its Wikipedia page, the paper caused some controversy after the Hillsborough disaster which of course happened in Sheffield, by suggesting that drunken Liverpool fans were to blame. Of course, everyone knows The Sun reported that, and there's a lot of hatred on Merseyside for The Sun, understandably, for that. I didn't know that other newspapers had repeated that allegation. So that's the only notable thing, really, on the Wikipedia page of the Sheffield Star, and that's what Alison is delivering. And as she picks up her papers and loads them into her bike... We hear a news report in the background which speaks of the deepening trouble in the Middle East. This time it reports a collision between two ships in the Gulf. The Soviet Kirov has collided with the USS Callahan. Now I did a bit of googling and the Callahan was a real American ship, a destroyer, launched in 1943 but then sunk in 1945 by the Japanese. However, another USS Callahan was built, launched in 1979, and according to Wikipedia, it was ordered by Iran. But the order was cancelled, of course, following the Iranian revolution of that same year. Now, the Callahan does have a very interesting Cold War role. In 1983, after the Soviets had shot down the Korean passenger plane, the Callahan was in the region. And she was sent to look for survivors in the water. And during that operation, she was, of course, under very close surveillance by the Soviet Navy. What about the Kirov? Was she real? Yes, there was a Soviet battlecruiser, a nuclear-powered one, by that name, which was launched in 77. We then move on to seeing our blooming young couple, Jimmy and Ruth, viewing a flat. Interestingly, they are buying a flat, and we can assume that most young couples couldn't do that these days. They would have to rent first or stay with the parents. But no, we can see from the sign at the window that this is for sale, and it's being sold by Ellis, Willis and Beckett. And when I googled them, they are a real property auctioneers in Sheffield. Again, that little nod to reality. I absolutely love that. The filmmakers have taken care to make this as real as possible. So they're going to buy their first home. It's in a high-rise, so again, realistic. They're not moving into some big posh house. They are starting out in a high-rise flat. And Ruth mentions that her parents will help them out with expenses. And Jimmy, perhaps stung slightly by that, immediately says that his parents will help out too. And then there's a bit of light-hearted chatter when they joke about how Jimmy's mum had said they could have his dad's redundancy money and the poor dad was horrified and... That would mean all his plans for Bermuda were out the window and it would have to be Blackpool instead. And Ruth plans to paint all the walls white. And Jimmy looks out the window and wonders if he could perhaps get permission to build an aviary downstairs. And it's a few minutes, a few moments rather, of a young couple making dull but wholesome, happy plans. And Ruth hugs Jimmy and says, it'll be lovely. And before the four minutes allocated are up, we cut to the next scene, which is Alison, Jimmy's younger sister. She's at home doing her homework. 
She has her personal stereo on and she's listening to classical music, implying that she's a sensible girl, an educated girl, a civilised girl, not listening to Duran Duran or the Pet Shop Boys, which I would have been doing, which I was doing in the 80s. Although I didn't discover the Pet Shop Boys until Go West came out, which I think was 92. But if I'd had any sense, I would have discovered them far sooner. 1984, I believe, is when their first single was released, West End Girls, which went straight to number one. Good old Pet Shop Boys. But not for Alison. She is listening to classical music. And that reminds me of something. In a previous Four Minutes with Threads episode, we discussed a scene where Alison is in the newsagent picking up her newspapers. And again, she has her personal stereo on. And we can hear what sounds like church music or hymns playing. Now, I'd assumed that was coming from a radio in the shop, but someone on Twitter, I can't remember who it was now, sorry, but someone on Twitter had said, I believe that the music we hear is coming from Alison's personal stereo and is being done to, as we've just said, imply that she is a clever girl. She's got a, you know elevated taste. She's not listening to trashy pop. She's got church music on. So let me know what you think about that. I, I don't think so. I, th- I still think the music is playing in the background of the, of the shop. Her mother brings her a glass of milk. And that's another appearance of milk. We've talked in previous episodes about milk and threads, how milk bottles and milk floats seem to pop up quite often, at least before the bomb drops. And I think that's just done because it symbolises ordinary life, the rattle of the milk crates and the hum of the milk float going down the early morning streets. And then the milk being set on the breakfast table to accompany cereal or tea. That's all wholesome, homely, ordinary, reassuring stuff. And then milk itself is healthy and wholesome. So milk does seem to pop up quite a lot. And here it is again, Alison drinking her milk and listening to her classical music instead of doing what the the cliched teenager might be doing, which is listening to Duran Duran and drinking a can of Coke or Pepsi. Not Alison. For her, it's classical music and milk. And she interrupts her homework to say thank you to her mum for giving her the milk. And when she lifts her head, she sees the TV is on. And she pulls her personal stereo aside and listens into the news. And she's one of the very few people in the threads who does that, who actually stops and listens into what's happening. Although a fat lot of good that does her. We assume that Alison is killed in the nuclear war, which shortly happens. We have to assume that because we never see what happens to her. Likewise with a lot of Threads characters, they simply vanish from the screen once the bomb drops. Even the main characters, Jimmy for example. Jimmy vanishes. The last we see of him, um, he is running down the street after the bomb has dropped, trying to get to Ruth. He tries to drive there, but we assume the electromagnetic pulse has knocked out his engine. So the car won't start. And so he runs down the street, pushing his way through the panicked crowd... I need to get to Ruth, see if she's alright, and we never see him again. And it's the same with Alison. We never see what happens to her after the bomb drops. Although there are, again, I got this from Twitter, from chat on Twitter about this. People have suggested to me that we do see Alison again. There's one scene, the famous scene where the traffic warden is patrolling the, the crowd who are penned up in the local tennis club. And one of the faces in the crowd, some people have said, is Alison's. Another um, supposed sighting of Alison or another supposed indication of what happens to her, um, again, someone suggested this on Twitter to me, is after the bomb, when we're surveying the destruction, there is a scene 
Or there's a tiny glimpse of a bite which has been thrown into a tree, presumably by the blast. Now, Alison has a bike. We've seen her with her bike when she was loading her newspapers, her Sheffield Star, to do her newspaper deliveries. So we know Alison has a bike. So perhaps that was hers. Or if not, perhaps it's just a a nod to Alison. Here is what may have happened to her. But anyway, poor, wholesome, hardworking, sensible Alison with her classical music and her glasses of milk vanishes. And so ends our four minutes of threads. As I said, there's lots of discussion on my Twitter about threads, so please do join in if you're on Twitter, or you can get me on Facebook. My Twitter is Julie A. McDowell, my Facebook is Nuclear Britain. Or if you're a YouTuber, I've also recorded this podcast, and I'm on YouTube as the Atomic Hobo. But let me know your theories about what happens to Alison. Is that her in the tennis court? Is that her bike in the tree? You do need to be quite eagle-eyed to spot the bike in the tree. I hadn't even noticed it until someone mentioned it and then I scrolled through and in my obsessive manner, because I am obsessed with this film, and yes, there is a tree, there is a bike lodged in a tree. But I prefer to think there is no mention of Alison and that's done deliberately. Because in a nuclear war, people will vanish. There will be people who, who literally vanish. Those who are at ground zero will be vaporised. We know that in Hiroshima, there was sometimes nothing left of people but a shadow on the pavement. So why should we expect Alison to have a detectable end or a, a demise that could be witnessed? Perhaps she just vanished. But let me know. I never tire of hearing your thoughts about this incredible film. So please do get in touch with me and tell me what you think. Let me also say a big thank you to my patrons who support the podcast and my YouTube channel and my research, of course, by donating some money each month. I've got three new patrons this month, so thank you to Peter James Nicholson, Tom Putnam and Katie Barman. If you want to support me, then please do look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo and there are various different levels you can sign up to, some of which come with nuclear rewards. And this week, let me thank um, a handful of patrons. I have too many to thank in one episode, everyone in one episode, so I'll thank the following collection of people. Dylan Crockwell, Dave Cardena, Antoine Stumpf, Sam Marco, Viv Huddy, The No Name Kid, Bill Capehart, Jeffrey Reed, Charlie Brown... Andrew Apostolos, Geert Kingma, Lane Raper, Amanda Nellist, Ian Whitaker, and Rob Johnson. 